Welcome to Coffee Over Suicide, the dramedy podcast about mental illness and choosing life over death, one cup of coffee at a time. I'm your host, Chris Parker Howard. And today on the show, we have got metaphysical badass, poet, author, Aether Candice. Uh, you're going to love this conversation, and we are going to get into it. But first... Uh, an emotional weather report from the medication front. As you may have noticed, the last time I put an episode out, it was stating that I was climbing out of a hole. Uh, and that is absolutely true. And now I am, I, I, I hope, out of it. I'm out of it. I spent 17 years without a mood stabilizer, and I uh, developed a billion coping mechanisms. I learned a whole lot of things about myself, and I realized eventually that I was just making my own life harder by avoiding taking medicine. And so now I'm taking medicine, and all of those 17 years of work are able to work so much more efficiently because my brain is just... It's really digging the uh, aripiprazole. Um, now, what does this what does this mean? Uh, this means a couple of things. I, I I don't see all of that time as uh, I wish that I had taken the medicine sooner because I don't. I and I also don't think that this means I've got to be on this medicine for the rest of my life. I think that uh, much like anything else, you can titrate down and, um, you know, safely in the supervision of your doctor and, you know, live a normal life without medicine or with medicine, whichever way works best for you. I spent a lot of time without the medicine because I didn't like the way it made me feel, or rather, I didn't like the way that I couldn't feel. I couldn't feel anything. Uh, I gained an incredible amount of weight, and uh, I just generally didn't like myself. I didn't like anything about what was happening to me. I wasn't having mood swings, but I wasn't having moods at all, other than uh, some depression, honestly. Um, so here we are. Aripiprazole, commonly known as Abilify, it's working for me. And I'm incredibly grateful that it's working for me because now all of those 17 years that I spent with no mood stabilizer, developing coping mechanism after coping mechanism, it's now a superpower because my moods aren't going all over the place. I can focus better. I can concentrate better. Are there side effects? Absolutely, there are side effects. Some sexual stuff, uh, weight gain, um, my legs... Uh, don't want to stop moving. In fact, you may notice as I start to do these intros more and more often, as the podcast is back, uh, that I may seem a little twitchier. Um, that's because I just can't sit still. We're adjusting the dosage and we're figuring that out, but uh, that's where I'm at. I'm doing the best I've ever done in my whole life, and I'm incredibly grateful. Now, 
Before we get into this conversation, I want to do something uh, right at the top of the show. I want to take this opportunity to crowdsource some ideas. Uh, as you know, the title of this show is Coffee Over Suicide, and suicide is a word that advertisers don't really want to get involved with in spite of whatever the context may be. So that's where you come in. I'm looking for ideas for how to generate some kind of revenue so I can keep the lights on here and possibly even book better guests, get a publicist, do all the things that a show does. As of right now, it's all me. It's all out of pocket. And I want to keep the show free. I want it to be free for absolutely everybody. I don't want to set up a Patreon and charge people for this. Uh, but if a Patreon is something you'd be interested in, I do have one where you can get a mug after you support for a little while uh it's one of these one of these beautiful mugs right here um so let me know info at coffeeoversuicide.com let me know what you think but uh all right enough of the business stuff let's get into this conversation with aether candace Welcome. <laughs> How you doing today? What's going on? I am doing well. I am uh, enjoying the morning. I didn't bring my coffee. I brought lime water today. Mmm, lime water. Hey, that's pretty good. Yeah. yeah, I've been awake for a long time and I'm still exhausted. So, <laughs> coffee yeah. is just a way of life. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. So, Let's dig right in. Uh, let's let's go let's go back if you wouldn't mind. Where first of all, where am I talking to you from? So I um, I'm actually in Jamaica right now. Nice. Um, yeah, I uh, I love it here. I live in a uh, not the typical TV part. Um, it's a place called Portland, and it's essentially like a rainforest by a beach and a mm -hmm. town. It's there, so I do retreats down here, and uh, just you know, absorb this different way of life <laughs> compared to American life. Well, uh, speak on that for a little bit. Like, like what? Uh, give me a couple of differences. Um, so Portland is kind of, I guess, in a way, back in time. Mm -hmm. Um. If I wanted to live more like an American lifestyle, I could live in Kingston or Ocho Rios, even Montego Bay. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons is because they get a lot of Americans that come there uh, due to like promotional things and business. Um, out here, we get more Canadians and Europeans as far as tourists are concerned. Um, everything is natural here. Everything is organic. So it's not a thing. It's not like a a plug or a, you know, a marketing <laughs> ploy. You know what I'm saying? It's just right. it is what it is. If you get chicken, you probably know the person who, you know, grew the chicken or raised the chickens. Yeah. Um, your fruits and vegetables, you, you want to know where you can get them. Everybody knows. You know what I mean? They grow here. Not everything can grow here because it is entirely too wet. Um, mm. Growing things here is very unique. Like, don't follow U.S. instructions. Definitely. <laughs> follow different instructions because it's just 
hot. So we are actually yeah. a lot cooler than the rest of the island um, because of the rainforest aspect. Yeah. Uh, but uh, still hot. So <laughs> anyway, <laughs> but it, it's different from American life because uh, it's just a different flow. The things that people find important are different, but also that it's in some ways it's good and bad. So living yeah. here is not for everyone. Right. Vacationing for everybody. Do it. Um, but like living here, I think the biggest issues that I've had to deal with are these social constructs. Yeah. Um, I'm American. Um, I'm not Jamaican at all. How I'm even here if I have one of my second husband and he is 100%, you know, never lived in the States, Jamaican. Mm. Uh, my first husband was born in America, but his family was born in Jamaica. So I've been acclimated to the culture since I was 23 years old. Yeah. Um, but even still, you don't know until you get here. And once you're really living here, then you're like, okay. So once you, if you can get over some of the cultural differences from a social perspective, yeah, yeah you'll be fine living here. It's just that it's, it's different. So it's kind of like where I am, you got small town stuff. So if you saw small town social stuff, no problem at all. I'm a yeah. city girl. I lived in Atlanta, well, 20 years, uh, born in Indianapolis, lived in uh, UK when I was a kid, you know, so I'm used to that American or Western structure. This yeah. is different. Yeah. And I, and I like it. I mean, I don't, um, I like hiking, and I like to feel safe hiking. And I can't say that I actually feel safe hiking in the States. I have a lot of questions before I step out and hike. <laughs> so, yeah. um, but here, there's no big cats. Uh, there's no bears. Yeah. No monkeys. Um, and very, the snakes are so rare here that they make the paper. You know, people like write about it on the front page. And everybody's like, well, why? because of British people. Um, yeah. When they went to, they did a lot of, um, you know, the colonization tour between like India and here. So they did yeah. a lot of Indian people here. So the culture in Jamaica is so diverse, more diverse than what people know. There's a ton yeah. of Chinese people here that have been here for like probably a century, same with Indian people. And so it's very, multicultural in that way but when the Indian people when they brought Indian people over here they also brought mongoose what do you say mm. mongoose I don't know anyway <laughs> I, I think it's I think it's I think it's mongoose I think you nailed it okay. <laughs> I think that's what so, it is when they came they were like Ricky Tiki Tabby had a field day okay Ricky Tiki Tabby <laughs> came out here and like killed a yeah. bunch of snake uh, species as well as uh, bird species so like the pretty birds that you see that are associated with the Caribbean thing, they, yeah, they yeah. don't exist here. <laughs> so well, yeah, there's definitely here. that big, uh, you know, historical event of the British uh, subjugating and colonizing just about anywhere they could get their dirty little boots. I mean, it's it's tendrils are felt still to this day, just yeah. everywhere. And I'm very curious to see. Uh, I'm very curious to see what this this next uh, uh, this next phase of whatever it is they're going to do is, because I feel like 
the very idea of a monarchy. Not to now we're getting into politics, which I'm fine, but <laughs> uh, I think the very idea of a monarchy is starting to really slip from people's minds as something like, like I think people are starting to be a lot more thoughtful about uh, uh, about the way they are. Uh, you know, cared for and ruled, so to speak. Um, and I, I don't know if the, I don't know if the monarchy is is going to. I mean, it, I think it's it's certainly going to survive for a long time because power structures like this are like a Titanic. Even when they sink, I think it's going to take decades, even if this is the last gasp of it. You know what I mean? Uh, but I think that people are starting to come around to the idea that. You know, maybe this isn't the greatest, and we'll see. We'll see what people do with it. And I personally, I think that anything can evolve and change. And I always hope for the best possible evolution and change in things. But you know, I'm an idealist, so I'm kind of naive in that sense. <laughs> uh, I think awareness often brings change. But not necessarily the change that people are looking for, but yeah. you know, all the time, but it brings change. But like, just to give you a real life scenario about this British monarchy, of course, as an American woman who came down here, I'm interested in what citizenship means. Right? Yeah. So I have three daughters, two of them have Jamaican lineage. Getting their Jamaican citizenship is so easy. It's me going to the uh, PICA office, which is their, you know, office that handles immigration type stuff. Go to the PICA office, fill out some paperwork. I might have to have a relative there, may not, but I have some documentation. I think I'm not even going to have to pay them a hundred bucks, maybe eighty bucks. Yeah. You're a citizen because of your blood. So when you go to the PICA office, you see a lot of people there who are Cuban, because Cuba is so close, you can see Cuba from. If I stand on the shore, I can see Cuba across the ocean, right? So that's how it is. Now, for me to get citizenship, it's a little more complicated, way less complicated than people in the United States go through. But at the end of the day, I have to pledge to the monarchy of Britain. (laughs) When I look look at the paperwork last, because now I'm I'm sure it says Prince Charles, but before I looked at the paperwork, it said the Queen. You know, yeah. pledge this to the queen. And I said, but I thought y'all were independent in the 60s. <laughs> no, there's still, he is considered the um, the king of yeah. Jamaica. And then, like, you know, I came to that realization like years ago, but when they came to visit Jamaica, of course, the big, you know, pomp and circumstance, if they're here, everyone rejoice, you know. Yeah. But, on another level, because you got some people who are down for that, mainly because of the fairy tales. What does that yeah, mean? Course. The princess and da 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 da, all that jazz. But on the other hand, you got people who are like, "What do you mean? You guys are coming, and we have to put the bill for you to come here? <laughs> what? What yeah. is that?" And so there are other Caribbean nations who were more vocal about it. But I don't think Jamaica was as vocal about how some citizens had disdain for the, uh, it wasn't Prince Charles or his son, the oldest mm. son and his wife doing their tour uh, this past summer, um, the tour of the Caribbean. Because it's just kind of like, when you look at it, I mean, look at it for what it is. We conquered 
people here yeah. and we took people from there and then mm-hmm. we made money off of y'all for a long time and we paid people because we decided to set you free so we paid other people like hey man we're sorry we don't let these people free so we're gonna pay you and then we just now finished paying off that debt yeah this like i think it was this year so it's yeah. just like i don't think people really look at the realization of what it means like you could look at it from a business perspective you can look at it from humanitarian perspective but ultimately it's a small group of people got together and profited off of the demise of other people yeah yeah what more is there i i I mean you know you can absolutely look at every situation from all angles but sometimes Sometimes it is incredibly simple. There is a piece of it that uh, there is a piece of it that uh, is just too great to overlook or look at as equal to all the other parts. I mean, yeah, sure. There's a business perspective. There's a sociological perspective. There's the uh, there's the the pros, the cons. There's all of those things. But then at the end of the day, you, it's exactly like you said. These people benefiting off of the destruction of so many people and so many families. I mean, at the end, I mean, what do you do? What do you do with that? I mean, it, well, now it's, people want reparations. You know, they talk yeah. about reparations in the states, but uh, now. Um, Jamaican people are discussing what that means for them but I mean it, it's complicated because it's like if they do it then that's going to make other countries uh, <laughs> look at things differently as well because it's like what's weird is like Haiti right Haiti and Jamaica are vastly different but they have very similar stories some of the heroes that helped emancipate the enslaved people of Jamaica went to go help um Haiti and help emancipate them and free emancipate them and give them their independence. But Haiti paid for their independence. They were indebted to France for a long time. I would say it wasn't it was we were alive when they were still paying for it, I believe. So what if that happens, should France start giving money back? <laughs> should they give Haiti a <laughs> refund? Because they should have never had to pay them in the first place. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's an incredibly complicated thing. It's uh, but I mean, I'm just imagining, uh, you know, when one country finally does it and and puts reparations in place um, and starts making some kind of attempt. I can only imagine so many stodgy old white guys running the other countries just going no just screaming so loudly into the night as the old ways slowly slough off uh and we hopefully change our skin you know it's that's 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 the hope i mean i i I make no bones about it i my my feelings my feelings on this are are decidedly uh in favor and you know, I, I I said a long time ago, with regards to this podcast, I don't necessarily really care if people disagree with me. That's fine. <laughs> then you have to. 
Yeah. I mean, you have to because there's still people out there who will agree with you, and yeah. maybe they feel alone. But hearing your voice be like, "Hey, I'm not alone in the world. Somebody feels the same way I feel, no matter what yeah. you're thinking." You know? Yeah, yeah. You know, you'll find your people. You always do. But speaking of people, uh, you're a people. What? Uh, <laughs> talk to me a little bit about how how you found your people. What was it like where you grew up? Well, I moved around a lot. Yeah. So there's like a, there's facets to this. There's a so, whole personality aspect of a person who moves around a lot. Yeah, it's actually in my astro chart. When people look at my chart, the first thing they say is, "Did you move a lot? Do you travel a lot?" Like, yeah. Yes. Um, I can't remember what points they are, but it's in there. But um, so I was born in Indianapolis, moved to the UK when I was about 18 months, came mm-hmm. back like just a month shy of five. Um, one thing I remember about that is that my parents were very much, so much more free with me in the, in the UK. Um, we lived in a town called Ipswich, mm, and yeah. I had a, uh, I remember my babysitters, and I had friends. I had these three-year-old and a nine-year-old that used to come and pick me up to play with me, and my mother would let that happen. And I remember we would be, there would be a bunch of little girls dancing to Jody Watley yeah. in the house. And we would like roll up our shirts and, you know, like we had major top. And yeah. it was a good time. Now, when we came to the States, she pulled back the reins on a lot. Um, that freedom to, hey, somebody's come pick you up to go play with you. No, it wasn't yeah. happening. I couldn't ride my bike. I mean, it was all, we lived in a, a good neighborhood. It's still a good neighborhood, which is a... A thing, a lot of neighborhoods changed, especially in the, yeah. in the 80s and 90s. Yes. It's hasn't changed. The house still looks the same <laughs> as it did. Because I always, when I go visit, I always go drive by just to look at it. It looks the same. Same colors, everything. And, um, but my mother was just like, it's different here. And I feel that in a real way. Even like from Jamaica to the United States, you know. In the States, I wouldn't let my daughter go take the trash out unless I watched her. Yeah. And mainly it's because of, well, today it's sex trafficking. But yeah. I was once, I was almost picked up. When I was like eight or, no, my brother was probably like seven. Yeah. Um, ride my bike, my mom's behind me pushing a stroller. And then um, some guy asked me for uh, what the name of the street was. I looked up, there was a street sign, and I couldn't even respond because I remember my mom screaming and running behind me. And he, I remember he like, looked over, saw her, and sped off. Later, I realized that was a tactic for them to say, hey, come closer, come closer, and like, snatch you in. So that's the type of stuff that was always at the top of mind for her, and yeah. I was never allowed to just do stuff. Um, went to uh, it was like an all black Catholic school from when I came back to the states till about third grade. Interesting experience. Um, <laughs> Did it stick? Did any of the Catholicism stick? It stuck for me to be able to uh, look at it from the perspective of, of like dissecting it. Yeah, <laughs> you understand. Like, I'm glad yeah. I had that experience to be able to say, to look at it for what it is. You know, yeah, what I mean? yeah. Like, I'm, I do some weird and interesting historical religious studies. So <laughs> that might be a whole other show. But anyway, <laughs> um, so I, 
I was always like, why are we forced to do these things? But at the same time, can't do other things because you're not Catholic. Yeah. But having, but that school that made it seem like they were just so special and prestigious, and it was crap. I mean, you know, from the infrastructure, it was an old church, and the school had been around forever. I think one of my aunts went to that school. And uh, socially, you know, they had the wrong teachers in there. Teachers were like, very racist <laughs> yeah. women and uh, they didn't I think one of the issues that a lot of people have and like people have to make it seem like it's not a thing it's a thing there are cultural differences yeah um, within the United States and it doesn't always have to be color right it can be socioeconomic it could be you know just neighborhoods it could be anything but if a student <laughs> comes into uh, a teacher comes into and they're not used to being alert. they have no black friends they have no black relatives they have no and they come in working with children they are like it's weird like my I heard my mom had to come to the school because the teacher just came up and just said I hate you I hate you all I want you to know that to a group of first graders so of course I went home and told my mom and of course she went up and, and said something and um, from that point, it didn't. It wasn't like it got better. My other teacher, my second grade teacher, she was great. She was uh, Afro Latina and just warm, loving person. The next one was horrible, horrible. And it was so weird. Is all the teachers loved me. They absolutely adored me. And um, but I never let them know that I hated the way they treated us. Not them, but the way they treated us. And it was yeah. just weird the next school i went to was really cool uh because it was in today's time you even call it a social experiment that they still run today hmm. so when the busing situation happened in indianapolis around like the 70s 60s yeah. 70s or so this particular township decided to do like racial uh integration down to the science so it wasn't just race it was socioeconomics mm-hmm. and gender so mm-hmm. when I went to this new school, everybody was there. But at the time, Indianapolis was super black and white. They didn't have outside cultures. I think there right. was like one Mexican girl the whole time I was there. Today right. would be a different story because there's more cultures involved, not just American black and white. Right. But anyway, it was just cool because I was able to be friends with everybody. Um and we had teachers who were cool. I mean, they were they were all white, but they were great. You know, they didn't say, I hate you. Treat us like that. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, and we got to do some of the most amazing things in the world. Um, still to this day, this is one of the best school experiences I've ever had from an academic perspective and socially. Then we moved to my dad's job for General Motors. We moved to like Illinois, and so he could work in Wisconsin, mm. and that was chaos. I was like one yeah. of nine black kids in a school, one of nine kids of color in all my school. Um, and the, the kids of color were like Cuban, black, maybe a couple Asians. You know what I mean? There was like mm-hmm. three, yeah. four black people. So it was hard because it wasn't like how people make it seem like on TV. You know, it's yeah. not. They were, and then they, socioeconomically, the majority of the school was poorer. Yeah. So, 
I would dealt with a lot of stuff, a lot. Um, my mom was up at school all the time. And the principals had basically had to tell her, like, look, this is the environment that you're in. This is, this is how they are. And this is probably going to continue to happen to your daughter. Um, I maybe had one extremely racist teacher out of all of that. One. I'll never forget that man. But he was trying his best. Because I was in an advanced math class. Yeah. He was always trying to make me feel like I didn't belong. But also embarrassed me in front of class all the time. And at the end yeah. of the day, he ended up getting in trouble with his superiors because I had the actual proof of the type of stuff he was doing. Moved to Atlanta in 97. Um, Atlanta Metro. So my parents had us out in Gwinnett County, Swanee, which was a much bigger school. Still the same type of racial makeup where the black people were minority. We actually wore Asian kids than black yeah. kids. Um, a lot of people don't understand how Asian Atlanta is. They always think it's mostly black, but it's nah. It's very multicultural. Everybody's there. Yeah. <laughs> like everybody. So we had, uh, but we didn't have any black teachers until like my senior year, which was mm. weird. Um, but we, that socioeconomics of that class, that school was very, very wealthy. Like a lot of kids had two cars. If they had a Honda, it was scooped up to the gills. Okay, like they weren't playing any games. Um, very difficult to the students weren't so much the issue with the administration. So they yeah. treated us like everybody black's a criminal. You know what I mean? Like if black people are standing around talking and laughing. Break it up, break it up, break it up. They assumed everything was about to yeah. be a fight. And that's right. what I mean by cultural awareness. Like, if you're not used to being around black people, you might be freaked out by the laugh. And right. that, that, that was the thing. And so. That's, that is so wild. <laughs> but, people but I mean, I, I, I get it. I've seen it. You know, I've, I've been around it. But yeah, it's, it's still. It still just it still just blows my mind, you know. Like I I I grew up in a small town in Michigan that mm. was predominantly black, um, but it was also um, yeah it was also very poor the area I was in. So mm-hmm. it was like yeah there there were a lot of different cultures going on, but I mean everybody was still so separate and everybody mm-hmm. kept to themselves mm-hmm. and. The, just the casual, casual levels of racism that I'd see on a daily basis that everybody just sort of accepted as this is how it is. Yeah, I'm glad you said that. Because <laughs> one of the issues that I've had in friendships with white people during those years, I'd say before we were in Illinois, was that my white friends would always uh, discredit my experiences. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like you saying, oh, I saw that. And people just, you know, it took me over decades to get one friend to acknowledge that racism is an issue because she would invite me to places and the first thing I'd say is, are there black people there? And she would be like, why do you always ask that? Because I know of real life situations where black people have gone places where there weren't anybody else that looked like them and did not come back home. 
Yeah. And she's like, I, I can't believe that. Yeah. Okay. And then, like, years later, the daughter of the killer comes forward and says, my dad actually killed this person. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And now the mystery is solved. Yeah, she came <laughs> selling candy and died. <laughs> yeah. You know yeah. what I'm saying? So, yeah. Um, but I love it when, you know, everybody doesn't have to agree. Right. But it's just the denying the existence of things. That's what you're chasing. If someone yeah. were to say, hey, I don't even like black people, I'd be like, all right, you know, you're not offending me. That's how you feel. Okay, yeah. cool. But for that same person or a person who claims they like black people, I think that pisses me off more. Oh, can I? Can it, I yeah. Can I? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. You can I say think whatever. That pisses me off more is a person who claims they like black people but deny our experiences. I would rather be yeah. around a person who does not like black people and will say, yeah, we did it. <laughs> and then, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> own it. If that's how you feel, yeah. own it. But yeah, don't yeah. Here and pretend like you're, you're cool with black people, but at the same time, that never happened. Well, and you want to know where you stand with people. Like, I, right. I mean, just the idea of just the idea of going out in public and, and being able to feel comfortable. It's like if you kind of know if you kind of know where you stand with people, you you kind of know what to expect. If you don't know what where you're at, it's almost like having to be on your back foot. Like, all right, it's coming. It's coming. It's probably coming. Like, ah, there it is. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and sometimes I feel like if I just came out and said that, everybody could like say a deep sigh, like, you know, I've always hated black people my whole life. Instead of just pretending, you know what I mean? Because I yeah, can yeah. always tell. Ooh, I can always tell the real yeah. racist. Yeah, because yeah. the real racist who are not, are the, usually the fakest people. Right. You know what I mean? They go, because like, I have a, a old manager, and she was... <laughs> She's always told me about how she doesn't get along with her brother. And she's like, I can't stand my brother and his wife. They're so racist. They just always say stupid stuff. And she was married yeah. to a Colombian man. Yeah. And she went to a, a school similar to yours in Atlanta. Where, well, I would say it was mostly black school yeah. in Atlanta. Maybe not at the time. Today it is. But back in her time, maybe not. But just very more diverse. And so she was like, they just like really get along. So I knew what time it was. So she invited me to her house for her son's birthday party. We had a blast. It was like the, oh, you know, I love, what, one of the reasons why I love multicultural situations is the food. I'm so oh, yeah. So basically, yeah, yeah. her Colombian husband's there. The women are there. They're like cooking up all types of cool stuff. And so, so I'm like, yes, I'm in the right place. And then her brother's there and they go out of their way to be like, hey, I just want to already know how they feel. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because she told me, if anybody's gonna know, it's probably gonna be your sibling. But they were just like really weird and awkward. And I was just, I wasn't mean. I was just nice to them because I've been being nice to racists my whole life. So it's not a new thing to me. But, (laughs) so you know what I mean? I was just like, hey, what's up? You know what I mean? Cause we, I'm, I'm not, walking around sad that people don't like what right. I look like. I, yeah. I, I got over that as a teenager, a preteen. Okay? Well, I mean, I would imagine you'd have to. I, I, yeah. I mean, it's like, um, you know, uh, uh, 
it's just it's just your reality. Like your reality right. is just different from the reality of like you know someone someone like me. Like I, I'm I'm a white guy. I you know what I mean. Like I I can go pretty much anywhere and do pretty much anything, and that's not lost on me because I see it. Uh, like I'm mediocre at my job and I keep doing well. I don't know why that is. Uh, it's, but I see it, I recognize it and, and I, and it kind of freaks me out and seeing the way that, uh, you know, culturally it seems like we are shifting into a place where people are recognizing it more and more. And, uh, and I think ultimately it's a good thing. I mean, just like anything else, there's growing pains, and with growing pains, there's you know some some difficult things. But you know, I, I think that ultimately it seems like as a society we are moving in a direction. It, and it's so funny that for so long it was like, <laughs> you know, like the way I was raised, it was like, well, there was slavery and then there was Dr. Martin Luther King and then uh, everything was solved and we fixed it. Hooray for us. Right. Yeah. And why are they not more grateful? You know, yeah. that's what I was raised with. And and so that casual level of stuff, you know, even being a person who uh, like I, I, w- I lived in the same neighborhood. Uh, but and so I thought I had the same experience. And it wasn't until way later that I realized I don't. I don't have the same experience. It's not the same thing. We experience some of the same things because we're human beings on this planet. But we're not experiencing all of the same things. It's like that statement of uh, um, we're not all in the same boat. We're all in the same ocean. Like So if the ocean is rocky, it's rocky. But if you're in a nicer boat... It makes that rockiness a little bit different, but right. but let me ask you this, if I can, that so w- with with all of these things, like like growing up the way that you have, and obviously being aware of, uh, you know your your mom raising you with this idea of don't go outside uh, too much, don't go places, you know. There's an air, the element of danger, but d- I mean, obviously, don't let it rule your life, but be aware because there's a level of danger out there. Like, what do you think that that, now that you've had time to process, like, into adulthood, do you think that there's any residual negative effects of something like that, like, coming up that way? Yeah, I was sheltered. Yeah. You know, I didn't participate in a lot of things socially growing up. And I wouldn't say it was a matter of safety. I think it was just a matter of, like, control on my dad's part. Mm, um, yeah. My dad lived in his own little bubble and wanted everybody to be a part of that. And if you didn't agree with that, he was, you're the enemy. And I was the enemy. I, in his mind, just been the black sheep. So I was always a person who had my own thoughts, but I think I was denied the opportunity to actually mature and grow because I was restricted from socializing um, in a way that I feel that is healthy for people at different stages. So by the time I turned 18, it's like the world just fell on me um, because I, <laughs> you know, I went to college and I tried my best to stay away. You know, I tried my best to never come. Yeah. Um, because it was, you know, once I realized like, all right, so I'm in college and 
I come home and I'll be like, well, when I come to their house, they want me in the house at 11 o'clock. Yeah, okay, no. I won't see y'all. I might see you during the day, but I'm not yeah. staying the night over here. And so I did a lot to be able to try to support myself um, so that I would not have to come home because even still, like I was learning so much the hard way. <clears throat> I'm like, I think I got about five books under my belt if I really wanted to talk about just that <laughs> alone. Yeah. Um, but even, I mean, the level, the amount of people who took advantage of me being green is ridiculous. Yeah. And that's something that I don't, uh, I don't play with that with my kids. I do let them socialize as best as, you know, as possible would make sense. Um, but I also tell them real life stories from my life and from the people that I've known. Yeah. Um, so that they're very clear about what to expect in the world. And I'm talking about dating. I'm talking about drugs. I'm talking about every possible thing so that they are prepared. Um, yeah. Because I don't live in a bubble. I live in the world. And I know I understand that there are many bubbles within the world, and I've been through a lot of them. <laughs> and I understand that people think differently. Like, this person, this, this group in this bubble, they think this way, this group in this bubble thinks in this way, and these are the reasons why. But it takes... Uh, a certain type of person to be able to maneuver and understand that, understand and respect that this is how they are over here, cool, and this is how they are over here, cool. And some people will never touch that. They'll stay in their own bubble or stay where it's safe. Yeah. I don't do that, and I haven't done that um, because I low key feel like it's dangerous to not yes. be aware of what yeah. other people are. Because on this side, this is bad for this person, but this is good for the next. Um, different mentalities, different reasons, different perspectives. So I, I try to educate my kids as best I can uh, about life, about the human experience. But coming up with the idea that you can uh, change and grow and be aware of your surroundings and be aware of yourself, be aware of your emotions. I mean, those things don't just come out of nowhere. Like, so... I mean, for you, where do you think the expansion of your awareness into these things came from? Mistakes. Just mistakes. You know, I've been hurt uh, many times. I have been uh, um, experienced some of the worst situations Mm -hmm. in life. And I don't, you know, and I do, I'm very... I guess you could call it spiritual. Mm-hmm. So the idea and understanding of worlds beyond this world, not the bubbles, but the world yeah. <laughs> beyond this world, you know, um, helps me look at things from a bigger perspective than just our everyday human walk on the earth experience. So I'm a seeker, like from early, from a child information about yeah. what it's like to be human beyond what we see on TV and what we see from the people around us. So I, I look at, I don't look at things like, everybody looks at things differently. Yeah. And I too am, I also look at things differently, but I think my difference is just out there for some people. It's normal for others, but it's just kind of out there. And I, I'm comfortable with that. I always have been. You know, I've always been a weirdo. What you do you know? think the biggest difference is between the the 
the way that your parents raised you versus the way you're raising your kids? Um, well, the first thing is the dynamics. So I had a nuclear family, a TV nuclear family. Mm-hmm. Um, my dad retired, because they were retired from General Motors, and my mother worked, you know, government job. Yeah. Um, we were never poor. We never, you know, that, oh, what was me? Black experience in terms of TV. Yeah, yeah. It was never me. I was actually closer to the Hudson's lifestyle. Um, I never wanted for anything, but I also never wanted. You know what I mean? Material things were never a thing for me. Like, I had maybe, oh, I want this toy and that, but I was never the kid requesting Jordans or a certain video game. What? Once the baseline game came out, that Mario thing, I was good. I knew him. (laughs) (laughs) Sonic the Hedgehog, I'm good. I don't need to know. I think I went as deep as 007 back in the day. It wasn't that deep to me. Yeah, yeah. um, I think I was different in that way. But also, like, the issues in my family were emotional issues. Yeah. Um, My father was a... uh, very abused child. Yeah. And he had restrictions on how he wanted us to be treated. Like, he didn't want us to be beaten the way he was beaten. Yeah. I don't think I received very many, like, uh, like how a lot of kids in my generation may have received a lot of emotions. I don't think I received a lot <clears throat> from him. Um, but the issues that he had, just because it was like just because someone doesn't exert physical abuse doesn't mean the abuse stops. Mm-hmm. It's the mental and emotional abuse. My father was like crazy, um, and I I've always wondered if he were to go and actually get diagnosed, what would they say? Yeah, <clears throat> I've had people around me um, who have told me of other diagnoses that their relatives have experienced and I say, what are the symptoms? And when they tell me the symptoms, they sound like my dad. Um, You definitely say he was a narcissist. Um, And he didn't really care about us as kids. Like he, you know, paid for stuff. And we always had new homes and new cars you know I think we went through a phase when we lived in Indianapolis where he was like he wanted to have multiple Cadillacs to deal with from the 70s like whatever car he was crushing on it as a, a young man he had to uh-huh. have it you know what I mean but like once he got through with that it's just so one, he was the type of person who was like well I did this so there whereas he was doing things to us mentally that would it was just ridiculous. Like, yeah. Um, I'll give you an example. So I, I had my bedroom was by the stairs at a tri-level house in Illinois, and so my bedroom was by the stairs. But for some reason, I would take my shoes off and put them like by my door, and so there's probably like two, three feet between the stairs and my door. And then so out of nowhere, he just comes and starts, like, interrogating me. And he said, uh, you want to kill our, your whole family, don't you? 
And I was like, so you basically like, you put your shoes right here. Why did you do this? And I'm like, I don't really, because I'm caught off guard. Like, what? Yeah. No, it's like, I always put my shoes right there, but, you know, it's like, yeah, you want to kill all this, don't you? You want to also fall down the stairs and die, don't you? And it was just like going in on me, and I'm like, what? Like, how do we go from shoes to there? And so that would be the thing. Everything would be an explosion. And I'd be caught off guard, and then, like, you know, he would do stuff like, um, finger in my face look pick me up by my shirt type stuff and like this type of mess you know what i mean oh, yeah. And it was just, yeah yeah like what the hell is going on you know and so with my kids they kind of got a weird situation okay so okay so the mother side of things i kind of felt like my mother i thought she was down for everything for a long time because she wouldn't stop it and she wouldn't yeah and so I blamed her for a long time. Um, and I say long time, I mean like the past year, I just really kind of realized, and I, this is how weird it is. It was a conversation with my daughter, my oldest, who will be 18 next month, <clears throat> that made me realize that I have to stop blaming her for allowing him to be him. Because yeah. my daughter was like, I think, um, we call Mama. I think she's like, I think Mama was a victim too. And I don't feel like Mama had the strength or awareness to be able to help you the way you need to be helped. Because he was like manipulating her and gaslighting her as well. And so it's, I think she held a lot of guilt behind, you know, what was going on with me and my brother. Um, and I think that guilt made her confused about what to do. And she used to say stuff to me that I felt like was completely insensitive and completely yeah. ridiculous. But I think that was just her guilt. And um, I think January of this year, I actually like cut her off. And I was like, I'm done because of the conversation that we had. And where she was just like, well, you keep talking about healing, but you're not healed yet. Yeah. And she's like, and you just keep bringing up issues because they are issues. They are. They're mine. You know what I mean? And it's not like I haven't gotten help. Like I was first diagnosed and for um, depression at 15, but I really feel like you could have said five. Yeah. The diagnosis came at 15. And when I went, I think I went to maybe one other appointment afterwards, and then right after that we moved to Atlanta, and I never got any more help. Yeah. Until like I ended up. Um, I was nineteen. I ended up doing an outpatient program at a mental facility. Um, but prior to fifteen, I had all types of suicide attempts. Internet wasn't as good as it is today. If right. the internet was what it was then, because we're talking about late 90s. Oh, yeah. I would have been dead. I would just go into the medicine cabinet and just go, whatever. And they'd yeah. be mad when I woke up. And I didn't know what I was taking. I had mm-hmm. no idea. Um, 
today, you know, if I see a pill on the ground, I can say L <laughs> Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and you know what it is. But um, or even herbs, because we always had like natural healing books around. So even herbs, I could probably could have done it. But, um, you know, even with the outpatient therapy at 19, they tried to bring him in to, you know, do family stuff because it was about me. They were like, let's bring your family in. Yeah. Anytime we ever did something that involved him, he would just be silent. And then he wouldn't speak to anybody for weeks. And because we were all so used to trying to uh, want his appreciation and love and affection, we would cave. Everybody would cave. Yeah. I think I was the person who just wouldn't cave because I was just in my mind, no, fuck you. You treated me like this, so why the fuck I'm sitting here in this place and you don't even have the, uh, the, the uh, willingness to participate in this therapy and you're just going to sit up here and just mean mug everybody in the house yeah for weeks and so my mother was just always wanting his attention and so that was the thing he would do but I never cared like once I got to a certain age I stopped caring because he would do little weird stuff like if he was upset with me it could be like my volleyball game didn't go how he thought I should go um you gotta understand, I'm naturally, like, I'm built for athletics, right? You can't tell yeah. with all this cushion on me right now, but, <laughs> you know, my natural build, I've been 5'8 since 12. I yeah. was the type of person when a uh, gym teacher saw me, they salivated. Do you wanna play basketball? No. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, when I don't have all this fluff on me, I'm just built like a track star, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, yeah. And I'm not a small frame woman. So any sports person was like, what can she do? So it was kind of like, yeah, I should be playing sports, but I lacked the confidence to play sports. I didn't have the mental game. Yeah, because yeah. Because I had somebody who was like in my ears being a dick to me all the time. And so my game didn't go how he felt like it should go. I go to get in the front seat and he'll be like, Craig, you can sit in the front seat. Even though I'm standing right there. Yeah, yeah. And just like he would do these little gestures to like make me feel unwelcome and unwanted. And that was pretty much the name of the game and his thing. Like how to make how to make someone emotionally suffer. Yeah. Um, and that's who he is. And he tried that until with me until I didn't care. And I just stayed away. He like never called. It was me my mother who might call, but it's like anytime he was upset with me or I just wasn't around, like he would be upset with my mother for connecting with me. It was, came to a point a few years ago, I was going through a horrible divorce. Anybody who was against me, he was all ears. And he was willing to take whatever anybody said about me and run with it. And he even made it so I wasn't even allowed to come to their house. Yeah. And, um, he turned my mother against me. And so a lot of, like my parents didn't know the, the horridness of my divorce because a lot of the things that were going on were just so fucked up. Yeah. And I wasn't close to them, so I wasn't telling them. So that was the thing with them. With my kids, is a different story. Yeah. So my oldest is 18, will be 18 next month, uh, November. 
Um, and I didn't have, I was like 22 when she was born. Mm-hmm. Uh, so 19, was it 20? Yeah, 2001, I was admitted into, I was in the outpatient program first. And then at December 31st, December 30th, I was admitted in handcuffs to a uh, mental hospital because I tried to kill myself. Why would you put somebody in handcuffs who's trying to kill themselves? I don't know. But, you know, whatever. That was how they did it. Well, that's a whole other conversation. (laughs) I don't have an arrest record, but I'm like, that's the only time in my life where I've been in handcuffs Mm -hmm. um, in a non-fun situation. Oh, yeah. So essentially, uh, I go and I'm there for, that was my New Year's in 2002. And um, one of the reasons why I even went was I just, my dad had came to visit and just fucking triggered the shit out of me. We went to go visit his relatives and I'm 19 I'm old enough to do what I want I guess and their relatives were like hey can you and your brother hang out with us longer your dad wants to go but can you hang I'm like well I'm sure yeah I said but you know let me ask him because it's the question is will I have a ride home and my brother's younger than me so I said yeah they want us to stay no you can't stay okay well left it alone but they kept asking him so he kept like freaking out and in the car cussed me and my brother out um, made us the villain and I was like all we did was ask you one time we can't control what other people do they I mean if you think it was for like some kind of insane reason if they just wanted us to be around them years later I realized why my father's embarrassed about who he is as a person he really hates himself um, if you listen to their childhood stories he was the coward. He was always starting stuff and then having to come fix it. He's one of 13. Wow. So he was, the stories that they're telling me are like, uh, they didn't seem like they were trying to down him. It was just like him dissing him just being a coward. Yeah. Starting stuff and then pulling away the victim. That's how he operates as an adult. As my yeah. father. So anyway... That incident really upset me, and I was just done with life. Um, and I was just tired of him and him having to be a part of my life. I didn't, I'm like, I'm gonna do this, you know. I don't want to, you know. He makes me feel like I'm such a horrible person. Well, if I am, it's time for me to go. Yeah. So after that, you know, having a kid a few years later, it was. Not, I can't say I was a healed person um, having a kid. I mean, I was with her. I was on my way out the door when I found out I was pregnant with her father. Yeah. And um, he was like 13 years older than me. And I was just realizing, like, I don't like this guy. Um, after we separated and he got over himself, we became really good friends, but... You know, I really did not, I wasn't ready to be a mother emotionally. Financially, I was there because when I had her, I was like, I had my own apartment, I had my own car, I had a job. 
and what else? I was at school. Yeah. So I had my shit together to actually have the kids, but emotionally I was not ready. Yeah. And then on top of that, she had, um, she was in the hospital for 10 days. And she, I had a good pregnancy, you know. Only thing, the issue I had was I had like gallstones in the middle of it. But yeah. other than that, good pregnancy. Um, but, you know, hindsight, other doctors who looked at the records over time, they were like, yeah, it, it, many doctors, whether I know them personally or professionally, like, it wasn't your fault. That doctor tried to tell me it was my fault because of how I was built, that my hips were too narrow on the inside. But if you see me stand up, you're going to be like, those hips, <laughs> those hips are not, <laughs> those are designed a child. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, basically, um, she, the trauma, the traumatic experience of her delivery made it so that she was breathing like a fetus and not like a baby. Oh, so when okay. They had her, they gave me like a shit ton of Demerol. Mm-hmm. And then when I woke up, because I had her at like three in the morning, I woke up at seven o'clock in the, in the evening and was like, all right, bring my baby. And they were like, ma'am. <laughs> and I had her in a small town called Warner Robins and they moved her to the Macon Hospital. So I called my mom and I said, hey, man, this is what's going on. She said, I'm on my way. She drove from Atlanta to that night to come get me. And I left the hospital that day. I was like, what the hell am I doing in here? Fuck y'all, I want to see my baby. Yeah. And I don't see her. She was gray. Um, her eyes were green. Um, by the time I got her home, her eyes had turned brown. I think her eyes were green because it was like some genetic stuff going on with her side of the family. But anyway, <laughs> she was gray. And uh, it was just devastating to see that. And then the doctor was like, oh, we don't know if she's going to live. And so I'm just saying, that was probably the worst day. Even all the shit that I've been through. Yeah. It was like the worst day of my life. Because, you know, when you... You grow somebody, you get attached to them. And so... Yeah. She came out and... I thought I was never going to hold her. I mean, cause they, would, they wouldn't let me hold her for six days. Yeah. They didn't let me do it. They were like, and they gave her, that's the first time I heard of fentanyl. They gave her uh, fentanyl and had her like on this NICU thing and she just, her arms tied, her legs tied down. They were like, we don't want her to be too active to stop her from her healing process. So ultimately she was in the womb too long. That was the issue. Mm-hmm. And that's why all the doctors are like, nobody would ever let that happen. And she was kind of too big. Her dad's six four. Yeah. <laughs> On a good day, her dad is about three hundred pounds. On a good yeah. day, he sometimes gets it before, but you know. So she's and I'm five eight, so she wasn't bound to be a tiny person. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so yeah. She was in there t- <laughs> too long, and got stuck and the trauma just kind of freaked her out and that's how she started breathing but anyway i didn't get to hold her for six days and you know when i deal, did hold her it felt unreal i always felt like they were gonna take her back from me yeah. or she was gonna die so it was just like when i think about things to do to help people i think about um having some kind of organization that does postpartum care for moms yeah Especially Nikki moms, 
because it's so hard. It's so hard um, to experience that and to not know if your baby's ever coming home. And then when you get them home, you're like, oh, she's going to go. Is she going to live? That's pretty much what was yeah. going on. So when she was four years old, somebody said, well, how long did it take you to get over your postpartum? I'm like, bitch, I'm still in it. <laughs> I'm still here. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't know what, um, what that means. And so basically me raising her was just weird. Because I always felt distant from her. Yeah. Because I always felt like she was going to leave me. And it was just strange. Um, Well, and that relationship uh, was started with trauma in so many ways. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And so essentially, I just... I had a lot of unhealed parts in me, and I was abusive to her. Um, oh yeah. I didn't know how to process the best way to treat her. Um, because I didn't have anybody who treated me the best way. You know, I had a mother who just kind of, I didn't feel like my mother was defending me because in the heat of the moment, she wasn't defending me. She may have said things afterward, but it wasn't happening like where I could see it. So I wasn't knowing that she was in my corner. I felt alone all the time. Yeah. So it was like by the time she got to be five, I started doing a lot of healing work, spiritual healing work. And I started to look at... Huh? Oh, I was just going to say, and, and, and I want to talk about that. Like, like, talk to yeah. me about the book. Which? The, 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 yeah, the first one. So that one was essentially about my first marriage. Yeah. Um, and some of it about them, but most of the book was about my first marriage. And it was just about me processing some of the pain that I went through. But also it was about my kids and how much I love them. Yeah. Um. The second book was about, so I was still in that marriage. I stayed in there until 2017. And yeah. then the second book was about me gathering the stuff that I couldn't publish the first time. That's what happened after I left that marriage, like chaos, the horrible bullshit that went on, not just with him, but like my family turned their back on me and all sort of stuff. Uh, so essentially it's like a continuation of the first uh, book. But yeah, those are, and I have letters to my, a letter to my kids to explain, you know, what's going on because we, I ended up leaving him. Yeah. And I took them to my parents' house and I left and I came here to Jamaica and I wanted to start a new life. We were always, as a family, with my first son, we were supposed to do that. But I feel like he wasn't ready because he knows, um, if he comes to Jamaica, he has to live a different lifestyle. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of uh, narcissism, infidelity, uh, issues like that. With him. And so he could move around Atlanta and do all types of crazy stuff. <laughs> but you can't do that in Jamaica. Because Jamaica, everybody knows everybody. There's like, yeah. you can't get away with too much. 
Even yeah. if you go from town to town to town, everybody has cousins. It's a small place. <laughs> yeah. It's a yeah. small place. So, like, even with my current husband, we can't go anywhere on the island. And I'll say anywhere as in, like, stop to get gas. Without right. somebody saying, "Hey, so and so," I've seen it. It's creepy. Yeah, as someone who's lived in the larger towns, it's hard. I mean, it's hard to process the idea of everybody knows you. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So it's like yeah, yeah. when, when. So with, now that I've been here long enough, I understand it. That's kind of why my ex husband dragged his feet. But when I came here, I came here to started new life for me and my kids in this specific place, Portland, because it was um, it's like a fairyland. It's like being in Ferngully. Think about that. <laughs> if you yeah. think about like, the nature part of it. But um, from a social perspective, my oldest is not her style. Schools here are not her style. So she she's up there in Indianapolis my mom. And which I'm glad for, for her, because it took me, like I was in therapy the entire uh, third pregnancy, the entire, yeah. I even went back and got more therapy. I'm a very, I'm a big advocate for therapy. Um, but while I was there in Indianapolis in my therapy and pregnant, I did go take my daughter to get signed up for her own therapy because when you understand that you did wrong you know I didn't talk to her right. it was, and it's not even just like yeah I, I you know I whooped her probably when she shouldn't have got a whoop that type of thing yeah, it's not yeah. just that that hurts a kid it's me not standing up for her when she thought I should that's the same way I felt about my mom you know you're not standing up for me when I feel like that or my ex-mother-in-law was just very abusive to her so yeah. um not standing up for her, but I was saying stuff to my husband like, hey, your mom did this, said this to my kid, da, 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 da. and he always had an excuse for her. And the reason why he did that was because um, he's a narcissist because of her. He yeah. was raised in that. Um, she did a lot to him. She hurt him very much. And he has been gaslit to believe that that's okay so if she did something to us me or my daughter that's how people are or yeah. what happened tell me well maybe she shouldn't have done something and so I think he's 42 43 now I think um, he's coming to a different place about his mother but I don't think that's something that will ever be healed in this lifetime I could be wrong. I hope I'm wrong, but I don't. So essentially, for my daughter, the biggest healing part for her was when I'm able to say, you didn't deserve that. You didn't deserve um, the way mommy treated you. You deserved a mommy that could have stood up for you. You deserved, um, you didn't deserve to be hit as much as you were hit, even though I feel like you <laughs> did. <laughs> you know? Yeah. You yeah, were yeah. extra uh, sometimes. You didn't deserve that. I should have had more creative ways to parent you. It wasn't like I'm in the 60s, you know what I mean? There's books right. and there's resources at your time of birth, which is more 2004. So there's resources available uh, more now to help, but 
And then she was also compared to my second child, who was yeah. laid back. Yeah. So laid back. Whereas my first child was like, yeah, let's party all the time. <laughs> you know? And so the third yeah. child came out like her. Yeah. And so she's very sensitive about how her siblings are treated. When I say sensitive, I mean like conscious. Yeah, yeah. And so there's times where I'll say, hey, so-and-so did this. What would you do? And she'll tell me. Because I'm very serious about validating her experience, but also being a better mom in general. And if anybody knows what is the best way or what shouldn't happen to her. And so I, um, I, I need her to understand that she's valued. I need her to understand that she's heard. I think that's the biggest thing for me. And that, you know, a lot of the stuff that I went through with men, um, her to understand that that's not okay. And so I'm very honest with her about my experiences. And that's, a lot of the reason why you wrote the books um, was for them to have real references of the emotional torment that I went through so that they won't do it. They won't yeah. have that experience that they'll know when it's time to walk away. And also, I want them to always have a safe place to walk away too. I didn't have that. How many times I want to leave my ex-husband and I would go and I might spend the night at my parents' house just to kind of feel it out. My dad would be a psycho. He would be a psycho. And then I would just kind of have to, you know, say, no, I guess I have to go back home. To my, yeah. You know what I mean? Because I'm like, yeah, one yeah. psycho is better than the other. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, I could talk to you all day, and I would love to have you back so we can dig in deeper. Uh, because this was an incredible conversation, and I, I, I definitely need to hear more. Oh wow! But, Thank uh, you. Thanks for talking to me today. Yeah, yeah, it's been fun. I enjoyed this. Wasn't that incredible? Oh man, I'm so glad to be back and I'm so glad you're here. That conversation really filled me up with all the stuff that I love about this show and about doing this show for all of you. Uh, If you like what you heard and you want more of it, like I know I do, then go to AetherCandice.com. There are links to all kinds of things that she's got going on. And if you like this and you'd like to actually be a part of it, feel free to email info at coffeeoversuicide.com or go to meetup.com and look for Coffee Over Suicide because each and every Thursday we have a meetup group. It's like group therapy without the therapist. And we get together, we talk about things. It's not recorded. It's only happening there in the moment. And it's one of the most beautiful things you could ever experience. So until next week, don't kill yourselves out there.